Gary Taylor, welcome to Whole PTSD. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Gary, what's your background? Let's talk about the agency you worked with and uh, how you became a cop. Uh, wow, how I became a cop. So, going back that far, uh, well, I was a police officer for 19 years. Uh, I left, I was in the military. I got out of the military, and I, it was just easier to be a cop because of the structure. And I had a, f- a friend's or a friend's father that was in the California Highway Patrol. So, that you know, knowing him and that kind of helped give me that direction, and uh, I like you know, doing things like that with the, the government, hands-on work, being outside, doing that kind of stuff. So uh, when I got out of the service, came back to Fresno, got a job, started working until I could get into the academy, and after the academy, I ended up getting a job with Fresno Police Department. Hmm. Um, I did ten and a half years there, and eventually left. I'm sure we'll talk more about why, but. Uh, I left Fresno after 10 and a half, and then I went over to Clovis Police Department right next door, smaller agency, and uh, did another eight and a half, so my 19 years until I started having problems, got into internal affairs, investigations about my behavior, and then that led to them taking my gun and badge, telling me I should go see a doctor, and uh, and I saw the doctor who I had seen before from some marital issues and she diagnosed me with PTSD and depression and that's what started the end. Hmm. So why make that jump from, from Fresno to Clovis? What's that thought process there? <clears throat> Fresno, uh, it was, I want to say the fifth, sixth largest agency in the state and then about 26 in the country. Um, we used to say, you know, we were running and gunning all the time at Fresno. There was so much violence shootings all the time, gang violence. I was in a gang unit for a while, um, but I, I worked the bad sides of town. I enjoyed it. I liked the fast pace, the action. Um, I, I was a kid from a small town in the San Joaquin Valley, 7,000 people. Um, there's things that you just never was exposed to. Um, you know, technology back then, you didn't have access to a, a lot of the news and see what's really going on, you know. But um, it was an eye-opening experience when I became a police officer. And, uh, but, you know, with my military background, it's just you overcome, you keep going. You know, I would look to senior officers for, with experience that give me guidance. And I would, you know, I'd tap into that as a resource and then just, you know, do the job. And uh, it, I just, uh, it was just a lot of stuff. Hmm. And it wasn't... Uh, um, I didn't even realize this until I guess I'm going to be jumping back and forth because it explains things in the beginning. But when the doctor asked me to do uh, write about my background and, and help, it helped me see the the trauma I went through. So it created a roadmap going backwards all those years. But when I did that, I realized um, some of the trauma, the death that I was exposed to in the beginning and how um, I remember this shooting where a little girl died and I had to follow her to the, the hospital. And sorry, it's going to get emotional. No, that's okay. Um, I remember her name. She was six years old and she was killed at Melody Park, uh, gang violence. Um, and I was standing in the ER when they, and I watched them strip her clothes off to try and save her life. And I watched her die uh, right there on the table. Um, but you know, I'd say it's just another day on the job. Right. And, uh, you know, you just, you see that stuff, you know, they think of mental health issues with cops. For us, it's just after an officer involved shooting 
or some major critical incident, but it's the day-to-day stuff that we would go through that I don't think there was enough education or that we didn't know about that affects you. And then, of course, it affects every human differently uh, with life experiences and stuff. But um, I, I noticed that I had that, and then a year, year and a half later, I had um, probably one of the worst things, worse than my own shooting, uh, was um, an apartment fire. And the father, uh, domestic violence stuff, the, the wife got full custody of the kids, and he wasn't going to let her have the kids back. If he can't have them, she can't. And uh, they were two, uh, no, four, four, six, and nine years old. And he cut their throats, lit the apartment on fire, tried to commit suicide, left the apartment. So fire was there trying to put the fire out. I tried to go find him. Couldn't find him. I just fell short of where he finally killed himself. But that, <clears throat> that event was really big for me because I, my son was nine months old, and my first child. And I, I went, when the homicide detective found him, I had to go see the guy that would do this to his kids because I was already exposed to the mother showing up on scene. And I was there with the chaplain telling her what had happened. And obviously I had to get information from her and just watching her break down like that. It just, what do you do? Right. And it was just overwhelming. And then I... When I saw his body, you know, he finally slid his wrists and all the, he was just pale white. But I just remember, I can still see his body laying on the ground out there over the freeway. And then I made the mistake, the next, the last mistake was going back and looking into the window after the fire was put out and I could see the children. <laughs> I could see the, the fluid that bubbled up through their throats where they were cut and they were burnt beyond recognition, and I could see how the fluid cauterized, and, uh, you know, I could smell all that, and, uh, you know, you just, you finish out the night, your shift, go home, and then I, my son, I went and stood over his crib, and I just, I started breaking down, you know, trying to figure out (laughs) how a father could do that to his kids. You're supposed to protect them. So, again, it's just another day on the job. You come back to work like nothing happened. And, uh, you know, so, and then it was a year and a half later, I had my shooting. It was a fatal, it was an armed robbery. I engaged the guy who tried to take off in the vehicle. And uh, at that point, when I was, we shot at him, he crashed in a patrol car. Other officers engaged him. And, uh, you know, we didn't know he was dead at that time yet. And, uh, but I was, uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff involved in going up to the vehicle, but I went up to the driver's side and I thought I was going to get shot and because uh, it said he had a gun and I thought I was going to catch it under the vest that he was pretending to be dead and everybody was yelling at me to open the door and, you know, that intensity and there's parts of that I don't even remember, you know, how fast I holstered my gun when I grabbed him and threw his body out. I had his blood all over my hands and washed it off in the sprinklers had to go through a lawsuit for three years on it until it finally got dropped because it was a good shoot and everything but it was the intensity I had nightmares after that and uh after that was about six and a half years on the job and but I just I I was shocked to see how close those three events were you know within a three and a half four-year period you know and uh of course I saw the doctor on that one um, but I, I was out for about five days.
because I needed some extra time. But then I came back to work. Later on, I became a field training officer. Um, you know, I was starting to get recognized for the work, my work I was doing. And then it was weird, but, you know, looking back, I had some some calls with my trainee, a guy that wanted to commit suicide by cop. And uh, I remember he put his gun away, and I asked him after we got him, you know, why why did you choose not to do it? And he said, you know, I got a friend that's a cop, and I know what that does to you guys. And I, I had sunglasses on, and I remember I started to cry. You know, I didn't want my trainee, and I didn't want other cops to see me cry, and I think that's part of the stigma in the culture. The You know, I don't know if that macho attitude, but I, I think that was, I can look back at that and go, you know, okay, these things are starting to happen to me. And so after 10 and a half years on the job, you know, I, like you said, I always worked the bad side part of Fresno, um, you know, just you know, rough and violent, um, love the camaraderie with my fellow brothers and sisters, but it's, I think it started to weigh on me. Gary, I got to ask you, you know, when, when you t- told the first story, I, I kind of thought that's where you were going to say you got help and then retired or moved on to something else. And then you told the second story and I thought the same thing. And then you told the third story. How do you move on with the job? How do you do do the job after seeing something significant like that? You know, I don't know. I don't know if there's a way I can say how you do the job. It's just you're you're focused on your job. Um, I know there would be times I would dread, you know, going into work, and uh, but it, it's just I like being around the people and I like the high speed, you know, the activity. And uh, but I, I don't know, you know, in the end when I was again bouncing back and forth, you know, talking about the past, you got to look at the other part of it and take you back. And the doctor said, so you saw a doctor how many times uh, in this uh, once after the shooting and you know, like six years on and then at the end at 19 years and the doctor was just shaking his head like that's crazy. And that was the stuff that started opening my eyes when my doctor, when the doctor that diagnosed me at the end said, um, trust me, you know, and I, I said, well, I do trust you, but I just can't believe that my, my PTSD, I'm sure I have it because of, you know, I can't tell that story. I mean, here we are this many years later, um, about those children. I can't, I can't ever tell that story without crying. I mean, I just, right. um, in fact, it was, I have to back up. When I left Fresno, I was at Clovis. I think it was eight years later. Um, my ex-wife had the Fresno Bee front page article, and it's huge. It was full front page, and then into another page. the The mother of the children came back. I guess she got remarried, a good life for herself in Pennsylvania. But they had pictures of her, and they talked about that night, and they they had her, you know, laying flowers at the tombstones. And uh, I I wrote a letter, an email to the author. And I said she wasn't the only victim that night. And mm-hmm. I went on to talk about myself and what I experienced. And my doctor said that, you know, well, you, re- you were re-traumatized, you know, by that incident. I said, yeah, I brought back all those memories. And, you know, she's like, do you have that article? I said, yeah, I have it. And she goes, "That's you kept it. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, yeah, you're holding on to that, you know. So she's like, give me a copy of this for your file. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was amazing to, to see how these things keep coming up, you know? And then there was other things that happened when I got to Clovis that uh, I remember my suppression, my gun, suppre- the fire, when I engaged in that shoot, my shooting, 
and there was an incident that was similar to my shooting there nobody can say whether it was the same thing but the scenario was the same shooting in a moving vehicle the layout the landscape um, armed robbery suspect he was shooting back at police officers I was going to shoot him with a shotgun and get out of my car I was in a great position to do it hopefully to stop the whole thing but then I I chickened out and I thought Clovis PD might think I was too much of a cowboy Fresno PD and uh, I was on probation so mm -hmm. I I don't know if that was it but they said well it's possible your subconscious was also remembering the same shooting because of all the similarities right you know they ended up going down the street and putting like 68 rounds at this guy and killing him you know and I thought yeah, I could have stopped that but um, you know you look back at all this stuff I would have nightmares I remember my flash suppression going off you know eight ten years later in a similar incident I was having dreams about a use of force that I had at Clovis and it was bringing back my shooting back from Fresno hmm. so it's it's weird how the memory I don't know compiles or files these things you know I, w I didn't start to understand some of it until until I started working on my education a higher education and then started doing my research on mental health um, you know for law enforcement and veterans too and you have a ma you have a master's let's talk about that a little bit yeah. Yeah, well, it was twofold. So my doctor, she said, I, I'd like you to go back to school. I did a lot of things. You know, she said, you're really good at teaching and, and educating. And she said, I, I want to get you back in school. So the twofold was, she said, you're too screwed up to continue to be a cop. And I said, I was, you know, the, I was burned out. And I, excuse my words, but I said, I'm, I don't give a fuck anymore about the job. I miss the people, the camaraderie, but... I didn't care anymore about the job because I was burned out and all this stuff, I think, that was affecting me. And she said, well, the one was to keep my mind off of suicide because there was a point twice I got, I was thinking about suicide. My wife actually had to take my gun away from me and she held it. But the doctor, when we talked about it, she said, you're fine. You know, you didn't do it. I don't have to do anything. You overcame it and let's not get back there. I said, I said, okay, good. And it was because of my kids. Mm -hmm. I can't do that to my kids is what helped me. Um, but she said, you need to think of your next career, so let's get you back. So I went to Fresno State, got my master's in criminology, wrote my dissertation on the, the uh, dangers of law enforcement stress, so I focused on sleep deprivation, how that affects us, you know, the physiological effects, that, mental health, PTSD, a little bit on stigma. Um, she and a friend of mine, another cop with PTSD that I worked with that went and got his doctorate, and he, the both of them were trying to push me into getting my doctorate. And I said, nah, you know, by the time I get my doctorate, I'll be 53. I don't want to have that, that kind of debt. But um, she got me involved in the Society for Police and Criminal Psychology. And um, I spoke at the conference for the first time, their national conference about uh, law enforcement, mental health, some of my exposures. And I, I couldn't believe that these are the people that help us as cops. These are the police psychologists that care about us. They're the only ones that know what we go through and they're you know, and they fight with administrations because there's so much misunderstanding or lack of education uh, on this. And I felt so welcomed by these people. And when I was done speaking, the, I had some of them coming up to me like, I want to fly you to Chicago and talk to the cops there. Um, others, another lady said, doctor, she said, you, you should get your PhD in psychology because cops will trust you. And I said, no, I know because I've been there and I've done that. She goes, yeah. She goes, they know I'm right, but they don't want to listen because I'm not a cop. 
And I said, no, I get it. So she got me involved and I did some speaking in Utah with her on law enforcement suicide prevention uh, for a few days. And, uh, and then I, I ended up winning an award at Fresno State. My master's thesis was the best project in the social sciences division. Plus I got asked to do some more conference speaking. So I went back to my doctor and I said, all right, you win. I'll, I'll go get my doctorate. I think it'll, it'll help me in this endeavor. Cause I, I, my goal was, I don't want other cops to go through what I went through. You talked about, uh, you know, giving, um, uh, giving lectures on uh, suicide prevention for law enforcement. What types of things do you talk about in that lecture and what types of things, um, are preventatives for suicide in law enforcement? You know, typically after a cop's involved in the shooting, it's, or, or the, you know, the time off, it's a minimum of three days. I remember I always knew it was three days off, but I didn't know why, hmm. you know, of course, after my shooting, I knew I was, I felt like Superman. I could punch a wall. The doctor explained to me, she goes, well, it's 72 hours is the endorphins that get dumped into your system. And she said, there's it, the body has to reabsorb them. And she goes, there's no way to get rid of them. And it just takes 72 hours. She goes, that's why you guys get those three days off. And then we check you and make sure you're clear to come back to work. And I said, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, I'm like, well, but cops, our endorphins are dumping all the time. If you, on a traffic stop that's, you know, you feel threatened, you know, it's not a dump like in a shooting, but those levels for us, you know, are going up and down all the time. And I'm like, that's the stuff that's wearing on us, you know? And I looked at what about disciplinary actions with law enforcement? You know, uh, all these things with terminations, internal affairs investigations, you know, complaints. Um, we can help ourselves, we help our family, we help the organization, and we help the public and the public's perception of the agency. And we would do so much better as a whole for everybody if we would focus on that. But, you know, it's the stigma, I think, is the big, big problem. You know, and one of the guys I talked to said a commander would come in and brag about his guys not taking the extra time off and talk down about, you know, well, just come talk to me, forget about what the doctor said. You know, like you're promoting the stigma, you're promoting the problem. <clears throat> right. You're not the expert in that, but that's the way, I think that's the way our culture is. So I'm, I, my belief is we, we need a culture shift in law enforcement. And I think it's starting to come around because of the number of police suicides that are finally coming out across the country um, I think that's starting to help change it, but I know it's going to take at least a decade or more for this, this kind of change to filter through. Right. Before we started, uh, recording here, we had a kind of a short conversation about, um, arguing and I, you said something that really stuck out to me and I'm still thinking about it here 30 minutes later. You said that you didn't know if it was part of the PTSD or just like an everyday life argument. Yeah. How do you differ between those two and how do you battle through that? Well, it's. I don't know. It's I don't have to see the doctor said, you know, you, like you, you seem you're I guess I'm I'm fine to function. Um, so it's just if I needed to check in or talk, talk to her, I could do that. But I, I remember I've, I've talked to her a couple of times. I'm like, you know, and I get in an argument with my wife or something out, out with the public. Um, I I would say I'm questioning. Is that is that just normal or is that my my mental health kicking in? You know, and, and, I, and I don't know. Sometimes I, but I, I struggle with that. And, you know, my wife will tell me sometimes, you know, your attitude, I don't like how you're saying this. I'm like, okay, but is that just a normal man and woman thing? 
that you know I, I'm left with trying to figure that out. Even if I talk to the doctor, it's like it's hard to diagnose that. Um, but I had an event that happened to me that that shocked me. Um, I had my family in the car this past year, and my daughter, my parents, and we were going out of town to to up to the mountains and. I had a situation, a traffic situation with another vehicle, like a kind of a road rage thing. And the guy that got upset at me for cutting him off and I felt like I was stuck in a position. But when he went around me, he made a, a, an aggressive move and cut us off. And he, I didn't even realize he clipped the front end of my vehicle, but I was so angry. Um, my, you know, I can hear my dad back there, like somebody needs to call the cops. So I'm like, I already know what are they going to do? Right. because it's it's my word against his you know if i was still a cop i could i could sign the ticket and give him the ticket myself but and then i realized you know this guy is so reckless that i should at least call chp and find out somebody's close so i did that and nobody was close and i was like oh you know let him cancel and then the guy pulls over so i pull over and he says i hit him and then i found i looked at the his quarter panel i'm like oh goodness we did we impacted so now we have a collision, so the, the chippy had to come out. And while we were there, the guy, you know, I started, I just blew up. And I started mouthing off at him. He was, he knew he could get under my skin, and he was doing a good job about it. And I remember I was looking at his jaw. My hand, I was on the phone. I was still talking to 911, and I'm looking at his jaw. And I was going to hit him. I, I, I was going to come up with an uppercut and just knock him out because I, I was going to lose it. And I finally realized, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm getting out of control here. So I walked to the back. Oops, sorry, hit the mic. Um, we were in between both the vehicles. When I walked past my vehicle another 15 feet back to get away from him so I didn't do something stupid, trying to calm myself down, I'm apologizing to the dispatcher about my behavior and language, and then I told her about my mental health and said, can you hurry up and get him out here because I'm trying to avoid – getting into a mess with this guy so he follows me back there and then he starts recording and he's trying to antagonize me and I end up having to shove him to get him away from me and he's like oh you assaulted me and I'm like this is crazy whoops sorry you good um so I I, I called my doctor um, I was after that all happened and you know it it wound me up so the report they took the report and everything said and done nothing else happened but that whole next day when my daughter was crying she, my wife, she called my wife. My wife told me later she was crying because she saw my hand shaking. It was so out of control. And when I told my doctor about it, she goes, you had an, an adrenaline dump. And she goes, that's why your hand was shaking. And she goes, I'm glad. She goes, I said, well, I didn't know what was going on. And she goes, you had a violent outburst. And I said, I was so screwed up. I'm a vet and I go to VA here and I don't, I, some people have said, Gary, why don't you go down and do some EMDR training with them? Because I think EMDR is something I'd like to do to help me. Because I break down and cry over the stupidest things. And uh, I just I don't know where it comes from. I mean, I could watch TV, and it's not even puppy dogs and flowers. You know, it's just you know something that I get overwhelmed. And I don't mean it just brings up memories or something. And uh, you know, they said, go, you know, you should go down there. You've, you're covered with the Veterans Administration. And I'm like, you know, I feel, here's that part of the stigma, I guess. I feel like I haven't been in the combat, and I don't think I should be taking that from the vets that were in combat. 
even though I have just as much right to it as they do. And I haven't done that. And I'm like, you know, don't be stupid. And so I was thinking about it. I called VA and I was trying to set up an appointment because I was so messed up from that, that accident. And then they said, well, you got to go through this process and yada, yada, yada. And I said, you know what, forget it. And then I called my doctor and said, man, I'm, I'm having a hard time. So she said, come, come in tomorrow. And I told her about all that stuff. And she said, yeah, you, you had this really bad, you know, issue with this. And this brought back a lot of stuff. And, uh, but, you know, it was frustrating to me because after all these years working on my doctorate, not having issues away from the job and, and then that, for that to happen, I felt like, man, what did the last five years of my life amount to if this just happened to me? Um, but you know, it's just, you have to work on it all the time. So, I mean, that's all I can do. You know, yeah. luckily I'm not in the position or if I see something that could be a threat, you know, I mean, you know, being an ex-cop, an ex-vet, or a veteran, not an ex-vet, you're never an ex-vet, <laughs> uh, I'm willing to engage if I have to engage in anything. So that's the problem, too. You think about, is this just part of the the mentality from that type of work, or is this more than that? So Right. Well, Gary, uh, let's just get some quick fire in before yeah. we uh, get out of here, but First uh, quick fire question is, what's your best advice for someone who's going through the thick of PTSD right now? Yeah, uh, get the help. Um, I, one of the big resources I would tell people is, if you, you don't even have to be a vet. Go to the veteran's website and look at all the PTSD information they have there. There's lots of short videos um, that they have with all different types. You know, Family members, they have their kids on there talking about how their fathers were. That affected my kids, too. Um, which I still feel guilty about, but um, look at that stuff. Know that um, one doctor does not fit all. So just because you have a bad experience with one doctor, go to a different doctor. And there's no such thing as one cure. Well, there is no cure for PTSD. It's just, you know, depending on what treatment you go to, it teaches you how to, how to deal with it. So when you can see things happening, you know how to handle it. And then, you know, with time that improves, or like we say, post-traumatic growth, will help you um you know so i think do that go don't be afraid to talk to somebody about it uh i know you're going to talk to your friends but you need to talk to an expert not your friends hmm. and you know if unless your friend's been through it and has talked to a doctor at least they i'm hoping they'll tell you you should go talk to a doctor the doctors are going to be there to help you What's your best advice for a uh, first responder or a uh, vet military personnel who's having suicidal thoughts right now? Um, you have to overcome the hopelessness. And I go, that's that's kind of where I was at when that happened. But you know, like I said, it was, I can't do that to my kids. And know, know that if you, you get to that point that it's not, you're going to, how many people are going to be hurt with by that to happen? You know, I don't know if, it, but you know, when you're in that position, um, I hope, well, it goes back to the previous one. You, know, you got to go and get the help because I think it's really hard. Once you get to that position, you know, you're almost there. So, but think about that. You know, if, if, if I can, I don't like saying things like that. Don't do it because of this. But if you can think about the harm, it's going to cause your other loved ones. Then if that will stop you, then I would say, yes, think that way. But you, you got to go and get the help and talk to somebody and there are so many things out there. Like you said, if they're veterans, there's a lot more, I think, that's open to veterans than there are just 
law enforcement, first responders that don't have access to that stuff. But there is a lot of access out there. Uh, we just have to, you have to talk to somebody and then go find out where. Because once I started doing the research, I, I didn't even realize what I didn't know. You know, like that's one of my sayings, like you don't know what you don't know. So unless you ask, you're never going to know. Don't rely on the agency to give you all the training and education. You're going to have, you might, you might have to go somewhere else and get it. But you got to take the time to go find it. Talk to people. Talk to a doctor. Lastly, Gary, uh, you know, we just heard your story. and it, It's very, uh, very interesting, compelling story because you've seen so much while on the job. Uh, what's life like for Gary now? I mean, what are you doing? Uh, well, I was fortunate. Um, I was teaching the last three years at Fresno State University in criminology. And I'm, <laughs> I'm actually moving to Boise or Boise, <laughs> Idaho. Um, one of my uh, friends and it was in the military with, he was actually one of my supervisors. So he, my wife and I visited them last year and we loved it there and we wanted to get out of California. And even if I didn't get out of California, I knew I, I couldn't be around driving around some of these places because I can drive by and remember what happened on a street corner. And uh, so I'm, I've, I've interviewed to, for teaching over there and I'm number one on the list for criminology at a community college in Idaho. Um, and then I've been approached uh, Clovis Community College asked me to teach crim online while I'm there. Um, I, I'm actually trying to do some work with NYPD because of their suicide problem. I talked, I had a phone conversation in a half hour a uh, couple months back with the, one of the commissioners that's in charge of fixing the, their education and uh, this issue. So I'm like I said, I'm going to move here. Actually, tomorrow morning I'm leaving and uh, eventually sell our house and make my home there in Boise or surrounding area. And I want to teach because uh, kids coming into the law enforcement profession, I want to help them out and let them see that. Um, but that's that's kind of where I'm at and what's taking me. So um, I know I'm hoping, you know, the change of venue, the mountains, you know, that area, just away from what I see all the time, it's just going to, I think a lot's going to change for me. Wow. Sounds like you got a lot ahead of you, Gary. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Jana Price-Sharp's first episode of 2020. Welcome back. Thank you. How exciting. <laughs> so, uh, Gary, very interesting guy. As I mentioned during our interview, um, he would tell one traumatic story, and I thought it was going to be over. And then he'd tell another one I thought it was going to be over. And he kept going and going and going. And very impressive guy, and he's, he's done a lot for the community and to better himself. Um, but one of the first things he mentioned was writing, writing about his background and writing about how he thought that affected his PTSD and his journey through PTSD. What's the advantage of maybe journaling some of your thoughts? That's a great question. I think for Gary, a lot of his writing was academic writing, so it helped him step back from it and look at what the research literature was saying about it and look at it from more of a dispassionate viewpoint. Uh, a lot of people like journaling, and I have mixed feelings about journaling. I think that sometimes journaling can keep people focused on what's really negative. So I usually tell people if you're going to journal, then always end it on a positive. Always end on what's going well, uh, what changes you've made, what progress you've made, what happened that made you feel better, uh, rather than just focusing on the negative. Because with PTSD, 
usually what they're focusing on is what's negative and what irritates them and what's overwhelming. And I'm not sure that focus by itself is going to be very helpful. That said, sometimes I do think it's useful just to dump. And so I'm not saying all journaling is bad, but I'm saying should probably have a mix of the very positive and and try and end with that. So your brain is, okay, you dumped some, but now you're refocused. Yeah, structuring your journaling as opposed to just kind of getting it all out there. Yeah. Yeah. Gary talks about going through a lawsuit while uh, simultaneously going through PTSD. What kind of effect does that type of thing have on somebody who's going through PTSD? I think it exacerbates it. Um, because what's going to happen is it just keeps the wounds open, you know, and it's, it's very similar to officers that are in officer-involved shootings where the court cases go on two or three years and they're having to look over the information over and over. They're having to remember what was said and what happened and the specifics. And I, I really think it, it's like keeping a wound open for a very long time. Um, that said, there's times that it can't be helped, but I do think that it can cause just a lot of angst and a lot of, um, sleepless nights, so to speak. So pretty common thing would be like an officer involved shooting that results in a lawsuit. Um, so what's your best advice to somebody who's going through PTSD and a lawsuit at the same time? That's a great question. Well, first of all, stay off the media. Stay off the, if you're a cop, the rate a cop site. Uh, quit listening to the news if it's being, you know, on the news. Um, very, If it's a very public lawsuit, stay away from all of that. Just let your system cool down. Uh, let your friends and family know that you really don't want to talk about it unless something specific has changed and you want to let them know. Uh, but encourage them not to bring it up because a lot of times what will happen is an officer, every time they see, I don't know, their mother, mother's like, have you heard anything? What's going on? You know, and so now they're spending all their time with their support system recounting what they've heard and that. And so they start, what they start doing is they start isolating. And so I think people really want to help, but sometimes we have to tell them how to help us. And part of that is saying, you know, I'm really trying to distract myself from this. I know it's coming. I know I'm going to have to go through it, but I don't want to think about it all the time. So when we come over, can we just talk about, I don't know, the Super Bowl? (laughs) You know, something besides what's going on with me legally. They have to get away from it. It's always going to be there. It kind of hangs over their head. But, you know, this is the time where you really have to fill that pitcher with clear water. You know, go fishing, go to church, go to... Go bowling, go do whatever you need to do to really kind of bring you back to the present in a good way. If if you happen to be watching the local television news and you're just trying to catch up on what's going on around the community and you happen to see something about an incident you're involved with that also caused post-traumatic stress disorder, where do you go from there? So, and most officers don't, but I tell them, shut off the TV Or turn the channel and get on something that's funny because don't sit there and listen to all of it because invariably with the police officers, if it's on the news, it's probably going to be negative and it's going to trigger you. So change the channel, put something stupid and funny on and just take your mind from over here to over here. You get to choose where your focus is. A lot of people don't 
I don't think a lot of people believe that. But truly, if you will take your mind and, and say, okay, now we're going to focus on this over here, your mind will typically go with you. But you've got to make a conscious effort. You can't just assume the brain is going to do that on its own because it's not going to. If it's daylight, go do something that requires some intense mental energy. I don't care if it's a crossword puzzle. I don't care if it's a puzzle. I don't care if it's mowing the lawn. Go do something that requires some thought process. Um, but you get to choose where your focus is. Don't keep your focus on what's negative and what people are saying because, oh, my gosh, that just triggers people terribly. So after an incident, Gary talks about uh, how most cops get uh, three days off of work. Um, what are your thoughts on the three days off, and what should someone do during that time away from work? Uh, drink lots of water, okay, after that because that's going to help break down that adrenaline. It's going to help break down that cortisol. Um, make sure that you're eating, you know, I tell guys eat some good protein, eat in a very healthy manner, get some good greens in there. So, you know, really take care of yourself. This is not the time to watch, you know, heavy combat movies or, you know, do a lot of shooting games on video. Um, this is not the time to go get drunk. You know, uh, a beer or two, fine. Oh, you know, a six-pack, yeah, not so much. <laughs> you know, just really do a lot to take care of yourself. Uh, usually when there's a shooting, they're going to get a thousand text messages from people going, are you okay? Hey, how'd it go? You know, and just kind of not respond to those people right away. You know, give yourself some time. And if you do respond, say, hey, I'm good, we'll talk later. You know, rather than, you know, what a lot of times they'll do is they'll call their friends and go clear back through it. And, of course, that amps them back up again. Um, they're probably going to replay the event over and over for a few days. Tell them the more you can distract your brain so it's your body starts to cool down, the better off you're going to be. But it's going to take, a, you know, a good week for that to happen. This is the time to go fishing. This is the time to go I don't know, skiing, whatever it is you do. Go play some golf. I don't care. But get out and do something. Get away from it. Get away from talking about it. Um, but also stay away from the media. That It's going to be all over the media. Stay away from that. Let your system cool down. We know that people that are... Uh, after a critical incident like that, if they start sleeping and they start cooling down, the chances of them getting PTSD are much less likely than people that stay amped up and, you know, go right back to work um, and and don't ever get let their body fully heal from that. So, you know, I, I couldn't imagine what it's like the first 24 hours after a, a traumatic uh, incident such as a shooting. But, um, you know, if you could control somebody and tell them what to do for the first 24 hours, what would that entail? I would tell them that before you ever get in a shooting, you should probably go talk to your medical doctor and see if you could get something for, for sleep before it ever happens. Because I have found the guys that do that, um, it will actually kind of override their system and put them to sleep so that their system starts to de- uh, stress much faster. Um, but if they can't do that, I would tell them to, hopefully they have somebody at home that is very, um, helpful 
and they have a good relationship with. Uh, when they don't, that's another issue. Uh, I would say to family members, please be very supportive, and that is not the time to get into fights and to get mad at them. Uh, a lot of my folks will go home, and the wife or husband will say, I want you to quit law enforcement. Why are you in law enforcement? You shouldn't be in law enforcement. This is not the time. You know, wait wait until this is over, and then if you want to have that discussion and say, hey, I'm concerned about you being in this profession, that's a different thing. Not right then. Not a good time. You know, just let that person de-escalate. Um, that person is probably going to want to sit on the couch and just watch movies and or, or TV and just zone out. And to some extent, that's okay, you know, but if you have little ones, I probably would not have them watch the little ones right then because they're going to be super irritable. Um, a lot of times their emotions are going to be all over the place. And so I've had a lot of folks say to me, am I going crazy? What's the matter with me? I'm watching a commercial and I'm crying. What's what's up with that? And I'm like, your, your brain is just trying to recalibrate and, you're, and just let it recalibrate. It, if you stay out of its way, it'll do that. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because Gary did mention that in the interview that he he kind of he finds himself now crying and he just doesn't know why you know why that thing's making him cry mm-hmm. um so that's just kind of the brain just kind of going through its its calibration mm-hmm. oh. yeah and if you'll if you'll leave it alone it will recalibrate but you know i i think that the more you can kind of do things that are self-soothing and I tell guys, whatever you feel is fun, this is not the time to go to Disneyland, which amps right. everybody up, right? This is not the time to go to crowded malls. This is the time to go peaceful places. Just let your brain settle down and stay away from the woulda, shoulda, couldas. And I know you've heard me say this before, but guys will get themselves and gals will get themselves all wound up of, if only I would have done this then it. You know, you can do that once and you can say in the future, this is what I'm going to do. And then you stay away from that. You don't make that a rabbit hole that you go down because then they can't get back out of that rabbit hole. Um, Gary talked about an incident of road rage, which in my own personal observation of PTSD, I've seen a lot. And we've had a lot of guys on the show talk about it. Road rage in particular, um, someone's doing something to piss you off on the road. How do you handle that? Yeah, that's a tough one because there's some really stellar drivers out there. Uh, And I think that if you're already amped, then any little thing is going to trigger people. And uh, you'll see this a lot with veterans as well. You know, they've been in caravans and, you know, where the IUDs have gone off. And um, anytime you have a first responder where they're boxed in or somebody's doing something ridiculous as a driver, uh, well, typically set them off, let alone somebody with PTSD. So, you know, part of what you have to do with your brain is you have to decide what you're going to replace that with. I have one guy, he just, he decided he's going to tackle this. So he starts praying for the person. And he said that's really helped him because it switches switches his focus around from hatred <laughs> to mm-hmm okay, this person obviously has stuff going on. They're obviously not having a good day. I'm just going to send a prayer out their way. Um, I think Norman Vincent Peale also talks about that. Um, You know, so figuring out kind of almost, it's called thought replacement. You know, what am I going to think when somebody does something stupid? 
because they usually have almost kind of a mantra of what they say, and it usually has a lot of cuss words in it, you know, so changing that, that what they're saying, and I tell people, write it down, put it on a three by five, put it on your uh, visor so that you can see it, and I know that sounds kind of dumb, but the reality is if you get mad and you start blowing up and you're now you're tailgating that person because you're ticked off or you're cutting them off because you're mad, um, the problem is that's going to come back on you and it's not fixing the situation. And that person's probably either a bad driver or having a bad day. So, you know, they're really not worth getting yourself amped up because that adrenaline that you just dumped is going to stay with you for several hours so is it really worth it to your system these next two questions uh as an observer they've been weighing really heavy on my mind and i've been putting a lot of thought into them so i'm really curious to hear your answers um gary talks about having a fight with a family member or significant other and um not being able to distinguish whether it's just a natural part of a relationship to have a fight or because of its uh, or it's because of PTSD. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Oh gosh, that's such a good question and so hard to figure out. <clears throat> I usually tell people if they've had an argument, I'll say, okay, if your best friend was telling you this story and you're a, an observer or an outsider to the whole story, what would you tell them? And a lot of times people are really good about saying, yeah, no, you were, that doesn't make sense what you were doing. You know, so a lot of times if they'll take that step back and think about it as a best friend or if your son or daughter was doing that, what would you be saying? And if they say, no, I can see why they're mad, it's probably not a PTSD thing if they go, oh, yeah, that was kind of irrational, then it's probably, you know, uh, often PTSD-related. And I, I think that family members will often discount people, and they'll go, well, this is just your PTSD, you know. And so helping both both of them to take a step back and go, okay, is it really his or her PTSD, or is, it, is this a legitimate concern? Um, because, you know, maybe, or maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe they overreact, it's a concern, but they way overreact, you know. And so it's very helpful if the significant other will say things like, I want to hear your side. I, I really am interested in what you have to say, but please don't be sarcastic and please lower your tone, you know. And if, if the significant other can stay centered, which is not always easy when somebody's yelling, you know, but if they can take that step back and, and be the calming voice of reason, that's also very helpful. And then if it is a PTSD response, typically the person will go, oh, yeah, okay, sorry about that, you know. Um, and, and part of that is a learning process on both sides. You know, both people have to be kind of accountable for their responses. Okay. And lastly, and again, this is one of those questions I've been thinking about a lot, um, I've observed people who are pretty much healed of PTSD, even though it never really goes away. Um, they feel a lot of guilt about the things they did while going through the thick of PTSD. How do you deal with that guilt once you're healed? That's an excellent question, and I have seen the same thing. I think it's really important to remember that one of the best gifts that you can give your children is to walk through adversity and come out the other side. And quite frankly, that's why we're doing this podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, because... All of us go through adversity, you know, but some people let it crush them. 
and let it take them down and other people keep fighting through it and come out the other side and what a beautiful gift to give to the people you love is to be able to walk through that and walk out the other side and say no I'm doing good now you know does it mean that you appreciate everything you said and did no it doesn't mean that but it does mean that you've done the best job that you could do with the skills that you had and I think that the more we get tools into the hands of people that have PTSD, the more families will save and the more people will save. But it really is a tool set. It really is a tool set that most people don't have. And so as people gain these tools, they start going, oh, okay, instead of doing this, I'm going to do this. Oh, that's what's happening to my body. Oh, that's what's happening to my mind. But before you have those tools and that knowledge... It feels totally out of control for people, and they they don't know what's happening, and they don't know how to even begin to address it. And so I I know that people have that guilt, but give yourself permission to let go of that guilt because you're amazing, and you kept going, and you got through it, and you're walking out the other side, and what an amazing gift that you can give to your family. Awesome. Dr. Janet Price-Tribes, anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? You know what? Just thank you to all your first responders out there who put your life on the line, and thank you for all the families that support those first responders. You're amazing. Another fun one. Thank you so much. Thank you.